0: Well, since he gets a little dizzy if he gets up too fast, but uh it was worse this morning so uh i I would appreciate if everybody would send up some prayers for al. he is ninety two you know, and uh, getting on up there, so uh, it can be not only a problem in terms of of age but it can be a problem in terms of falling like he did before, so He's been able to handle things living there by himself really quite well since he's been back, but uh, I, I do have that concern, and I'm sure you do as well. So let's keep Al in our prayers and remember that. This is the second Sabbath now on our count toward Pentecost. We'll try to keep us abreast of that each week. And. <coughs> um, Doing the count, as he says to do. And also, we've got New Moon coming up this evening, I mean uh, tomorrow evening. So we'll have Bible study here at 7 tomorrow evening uh, for a New Moon Bible study. Let's do it at 7. Uh, I know Al likes to get home early, and so instead of 7.30, we'll do it at 7.00. Okay, let's get back to 2 Corinthians. We came down to chapter 5 last time, but I want to go back to the last verse of 4 so we pick up the context of what Paul was saying when he left off. Uh, he says, well, even verse 17, we have a light affliction that is working toward an eternal weight of glory. "...while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal." So he's reminding us here that we may be physical, but we're not looking to the physical. We're not like the world out there that that's about all they think about is the physical, the material, and especially dollars and and, uh, materiality, if you will. They're only looking at physical things, and they can't see much beyond that, if anything beyond that. Uh, some believe they're going to heaven, but uh, still in all, they're living in a material world, and that is most of their focus, most of them. So he's telling us here that that's not what we're to do. We're not to look at the temporary, but to look beyond that, and he reiterates it quite a bit as we move on today. Uh, about our status, about where we are, what we should be doing as a result of it, uh, our, our legal status with God, if you will. So let's get into that here in chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's speaking here of our bodies as our house. Uh, reminds me of the turtle. He carries his house with him. And, uh, in that sense, as physical human beings, that is the spirit, that is the physical house. But he equates it in type to a spiritual house. So if this one gets dissolved, that is, we die and we rot and go back to dirt, uh, we have an eternal one in heaven. So, actually, I guess what he's saying is like you used to see on some of those wanted posters when they had a a bad criminal, and uh, it would say, Wanted, dead or alive? And they didn't much care which way you brought them in, dead or alive. And God is saying here, and we'll see this more clearly as we go on a few verses, He wants us, whether we're still alive in this life, or whether we die and are awaiting the next one, because it isn't just this earthly house or this earthly body or this earthly temple that matters. It matters not much whatsoever. <clears throat> As we read, I think, last week, precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints, because in the next instant they will be eternal, immortal, and live be living forever. So, Those are the ones that are safe. (laughs) You know, as long as we're alive, we still always have the potentiality. Hopefully we would never live up to it, but we have at least the potentiality of giving up, not enduring, turning away, as we have seen many of our friends and relatives do. So if we make it up to the time of our physical death on this earth, faithful to God... That's a precious thing to him, because from that point on, you're not going to turn away. Your endurance is over, uh, you're dead. And if you're safely, faithfully, in his good graces at that point, your problems are over in every way. So he says, if this one dies, it's okay, we're not looking to this one. People do look to this life, and boy, do they never not want to die. We've got scientists working overtime trying to figure out ways that we can go ahead and live 100, 200, 300 years and uh, make really robots out of us so that they can, in labs, grow organs just like the ones we have and they can pop them in us as our livers and our kidneys wear out and our brains and whatever. They can just grow us a new one and pop it in us and we just go on like a machine. Like a car. Something quits on the car, you replace that part, and the car moves on. And that's what man is working on. But God says, No, I appointed you to die, and you're going to die. But after that, the resurrection. So it isn't about this life. Now, we all want to live, and that's the strongest drive in a human being, is to live. And in us, it ought to be Uh, in even greater measure, not only to live in this life, but to live eternally. Uh, That should be a much bigger goal than how long we happen to manage to walk around during this life. Because it is certainly just temporary. So we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's preparing to change us into a spiritual house out of this physical house that we walk around in. It isn't your body that needs preserved. It's your mind. It's your brain. Your fingers and toes just do what your head tells you. And Christ is our head, and we should do what he tells us. But it isn't our body parts that make us really that different from the animals, it's our minds, it's the spirit of God, the spirit of man, and then the spirit of God in us that makes us more than the animals. I mean, there are certain animals that have fingers and toes just about like we do, and uh, other body parts that are very similar. It's the mind that makes the difference. So, this body is just a housing for our minds. For God's Spirit to dwell in our mind, and our body is what carries that house or that, uh, that building around. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Not to be clothed as a human being is clothed, but to be clothed in spirit, to become spirit that house that is being prepared for us. If so uh, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, he is telling the whole church right now that we have been naked and blind, and we need to get over our nakedness, spiritual nakedness. None of us are physically naked. Uh, everyone would run in horror. But we don't seem to be as horrified by spiritual nakedness in some ways. It's not as quite as real to us in the same way. But it is that spiritual nakedness that is the problem. So he equates our physical and our spiritual condition to uh, a temporary house and then an eternal house. I want to explore that thought just for a few moments here in a couple, three scriptures since we have this here. Uh, Let's go back to John 14, which we read on Passover, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I think it's Jude uh, that says that wherever he goes from then on, we will be with him. Never depart from him. Whether he's in heaven or on earth, or wherever he goes, we'll be with him. Now, Paul is speaking back here of our physical body as a temporary house, but our eternal house would be our spirit body. But it is interesting here that he says, In my Father's house are many mansions, not just average houses, but mansions. And when you compare our physical body or house With the house or body we will have then, that is a mansion. (laughs) That is a body that never grows old, the roof never leaks, the siding doesn't come off. Uh, There was a song years and years ago, we probably all know about this old house is getting creaky, this old house is getting old, lets in the wind, lets in the cold, and uh, physical houses get that way, and so do our bodies. Uh, They begin to deteriorate, and all kinds of problems happen. And that song, of course, is written tongue-in-cheek about uh, the author's human body. So he has quite an upgrade for us uh, in terms of mansions instead of what we got today. And he'll receive us, and just like I think it's Jude that says, where he is, we'll be also, always be with him, never depart from him. Now, what's going to happen there? Let's go back. Let's go back to Zechariah 3 for just a moment. Down in uh, verse 7, Christ is talking here. He says, If you'll walk in my ways and will keep my charge, my commandments, my statutes, the things I desire of you, then you shall also judge my house and also uh, keep my courts. So here he speaks of the future and of his house and his courts. Now, Christ had a physical house that he lived in when he was here on the earth. The Gospels mention that. I'm curious. Let's tie that in with... Uh, Revelation 21 here for a moment, and and, and just have a couple of thoughts, perhaps somewhat speculative, but nevertheless, in line with what Paul is saying here about the physical and the spiritual. We see the great white throne in chapter 20, verse 11, and when I picture God's throne, I generally think of the things that we have clues about in Scripture, about the sea of glass out in front of it and him on his throne and the uh, 24 elders and the angels round about his throne and the singing and everything that's going on there. But I never picture anything beyond the throne and the sea of glass in that sense. I don't know how to picture that. That's just clues we have from Scripture. But here he talks about having a house and courts. Uh, courtyard round the house, I suppose, is meant. Does God have, like a physical king who has his house, and then he has his her uh, his uh, government building with his throne in it, or whatever? Does God have a whole complex like that? I don't really know, uh, but think of this. In terms of Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, and there was passed away, and there was no more sea. Ezekiel explains that that's no more salt water, it'll all be fresh. And here was a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. So, not only will there be the throne of God, but there will be this city. And we know that that is comprised of 144,000 that are the bride of Christ, so is it physical or God's throne? I don't know whether you'd call it physical or not. He sits on it. Uh, it's made of something. <laughs> Spirit, uh, gold, wood. What What is it? And scientists have even speculated that even something solid like a chair there is made up of molecules that are constantly in motion. So how do you define what's spirit and what's physical in any case? One is on a much higher level, obviously, but God has hands and feet and whiskers, and uh, we're made in His image, and He sits on a throne. And a sea of glass is a visible thing out there. So this is something that, I think we'll see here in a moment, can be seen. It's real. Because we know in Zechariah 14, people will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles at the New Jerusalem. That's where they'll go. So it's something that, whether you call it spirit or call it physical, is visible to human beings. And... uh This city is prepared as a a bride adorned for her husband. And then he talks about the conditions, no tears, no death, no sorrow, no crying, and so on. And that we'll inherit all things in verse 7. And then he says, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife, at the end of verse 9. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, And showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So this was like a vision, standing on a high mountain and seeing this come down. So it was visible as it was coming in this vision. And having the glory of God and the light, uh, and was like a stone most precious, precious, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a great wall. So whatever it was, was visible. It was not just uh, spirit that can't be seen. It had gates and 12 foundations. and The Lamb, the apostles, are the foundation of it. And he measured it. And if you work that out in modern terms, it's about 1,500 miles square or cubed. Uh, if that were placed in the Jerusalem in the Middle East, it would reach. Uh, close to Spain and across past uh, Saudi Arabia, I think. Haven't measured it out, but it would cross a lot of water in the Red Sea and uh, and on and on. That's a big. That's a lot of area. Uh, 1,500 miles is about halfway across from the west coast to the Mississippi. It's about 3,000 miles from California to New York. In other words, so that's huge. Covers a lot of area. There's another reason I think that God is going to draw all the continents back together. They were divided in the days of Peleg, uh, to keep man away from each other. But now when we're living in peace without Satan, I think he's going to pull the whole thing back together into one continent, and that Jerusalem here and the this area is going to be the center of it, and it will extend out seven hundred and fifty miles every direction from the site of the true Jerusalem. Now, if the 144,000 make up that city, the apostles are the gates and so on, on in a spiritual understanding, what about you and me? If there are only 144,000 there, and that's the way this seems to be indicated, the walls and everything add up, 12 times 12 is 144,000 are the numbers that come up. That means you have so many cubic miles to yourself. Are you just going to sit there, make yourself a cloud to sit on? (laughs) What are you going to do? That's your area. I I haven't figured it out how many cubic miles that would be if this is 1,500 cubed or whether it's 1,500... Uh, with a triangle, uh, people have speculated both ways. Well, a lot of space for only 144,000 people. If you measure from the California coast to the Mississippi River and from the Canadian to the Mexican line, uh, you've got pretty close to that. And only 144,000 there, plus angels and so on. That gives you a lot of space. God hates cities uh, that are confined. He says, "Woe to them that build house to house or even field to field." There in Isaiah five. So He wants lots of space. We call it elbow room, but lots of space for each person. Well, are you going to improve your space? Are you just going to sit there in space, <laughs> or will you have a house? I don't know. It doesn't say. But he talks about his house and his courts there in Zechariah 3. We go on down here, it talks about the gates, and I saw no temple there in verse 22. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and it had the city, had no need of sun or moon because they lit it up, and the nations walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. And it has the gates that will not be shut. But nobody who is a sinner will be allowed to walk in. Only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The rest will be kept outside. And then water comes out in these trees that go to cleanse the earth and to provide fruit every month of the year. So it's a beautiful setting that can be seen and enjoyed. So when he says he has many mansions, is he referring just to our spirit body? Or is he preparing this great, huge mansion, the city, and then within it would be his house and his courts and maybe our houses? I hadn't ever really considered that until these scriptures started kind of coming to mind in reading what Paul had to say back here in 2 Corinthians Uh, I don't know exactly what it means but he says not just one city but many mansions there in John 14 and I think you could take that certainly spiritually Uh, we'll have a serious upgrade over this tract house we're living in today but uh Maybe it also has to do with our eternal dwellings. Just a little speculation there based on some thoughts that God puts out. I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing with them or not, but we have to have a little imagination, don't we? doesn't help to imagine what is going to be, and that helps you uh, in picturing it, helps you be drawn toward it and makes you more want to be there if it looks like a really nice place to be. Anyway, we want to be clothed with our house, which is from heaven, and not be found naked. Christ says if we come to the wedding supper without the proper clothes on, uh, we get kicked out, and somebody that's properly attired will come in. So speaking of spiritual condition, obviously. Verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle, our human body, do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So, our human house does get creaky, it does get old, it lets in the wind and the cold, and we are burdened as human beings. Just living on this earth, to some degree, is a burden. And God made it more of a burden after mankind sinned, and he put the thorns and the thistles and all the stuff that we fight. Locally, it's mostly goat heads and foxtails. But it's still there to fight. And uh, those things are not pleasant. So everything on this earth is not... Like we would like it to be. Everything in our body is not as we would like it to be. But he's done that so that we might suffer with what we have and look forward to something better. That's the whole point. What you have is not good enough. I would not want to live forever like I am today. That would not be very pleasant and as we age that whole thought gets worse and worse but clothed with true spirituality and that's what god urges us to do there in revelation 3 at this time now he that worked he that has worked us for the same self same thing is god who also has given us the earnest of the spirit So God is working to bring us out of this physical body or house and into our spiritual house, and he's given us the earnest of the Spirit to help us get there. It is by that Spirit of God that we understand truth, that we understand the Bible. Most people do not understand the Bible much at all. They don't know what they're reading. They don't grasp it. They don't get the picture of what it's even really talking about. So they have these vague ideas about heaven and hell and and human conduct, which does not include obedience to the laws and all the, the weirdness that is religion, because they don't have the earnest of the Spirit. So compare, if you can, your mind before God called you, and your mind since He's called you. And how you look at things so much differently today than you did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when you were called. You didn't have much spiritual cognizance, if you will. And now, the Spirit of God puts thoughts in your mind and helps you think of His way, His life, What he expects of us, we read in here the scriptures, knowing that we're going to be changed from physical to spirit, and that he's given us this earnest of his spirit to understand. Now, maybe it's harder for you in some ways to grasp the way you thought before you were converted, but think about your unconverted friends and relatives who still think that way. They haven't had the change in mind that you have had. And therefore, you can look at them and realize, that's what I used to be. Now, compare what they are today with the way your mind works today, and I think it gives you a clearer picture, because our own memory of our own thinking could be muddled. But you were just like them. You were no different until called. And then the change came. Otherwise, you'd still be just like your relatives are today. Oh my. (laughs) I wouldn't want to be like most of my relatives are. I wouldn't want to be that way at all. I'm too much that way as it is, even with the earnest of the Spirit. Verse 6. Therefore, he says, you've been, God is working, toward this spiritual house and spiritual clothing in you, and He's given you His Spirit to help you. So there's a therefore then. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the eternal. While we're still here living a physical life, we're not with Christ. Now, didn't He tell us when those mansions come... That we'll be with Him. But right now, there's still a great gulf between us and Him. We have the Spirit of God to help heal that breach. But it cannot be completely healed until we are made into Spirit and they're like Him. So He's working in us that we might become as He is, absent from this body, in having a spirit, minded body. So we're absent from Him. We're praying He come back and change us so we can be like Him and be with Him. But it's a difficult thing, this walk that we walk. And Paul says that, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe He is, We believe He's preparing us. We believe He's coming back and that He will change us. Not because we've seen Him, but because we've read His testimony and we've seen His Spirit and what it can do in small ways. So we believe it. We believe He's coming back to change us in the Spirit. So we're absent from Him and were not walking by sight. You know, the, the apostles saw him. They ate with him. They traveled with him. They were with him day in and day out. And yet, even they didn't understand him, didn't grasp what he was preaching and teaching, until they received the Holy Spirit there in Acts. And he said, To Peter, when you are converted, feed my sheep. He wasn't yet. So they were still thinking in material terms. That's why they often didn't get what he was telling them. Even from the mouth of Christ itself, unless it's mixed with the the seed of conception in your mind of God's Spirit, you can't get it. That's why no matter how good a teacher you are, How well you might explain things, you can't explain the things of God to a carnal mind. It cannot understand, it cannot accept it, and therefore it rejects it. But we see in our mind's eye, and we walk by faith, imagining these things. And that's why I spent a little time speculating, imagining a little bit, so that it might cause us to think and to look forward instead of just at what's around us. For we walk by faith, not sight. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Eternal. Would we give up this life to be present with Him and to be changed? Well, We're going to have that opportunity, whether we're still alive and remaining or dead in our grave, to have that chance. And willing, I should hope, we are willing in the sense that we pray, Thy kingdom come. Make it come soon. We want to shed what is earthly and have that which is heavenly and be with Him. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. So whether we're still here physically when he returns, or we're absent, that is in the grave, uh, that we will be acceptable to him. Now once you're in that grave, your judgment is complete. Your life is complete. You don't have anything to go on from there, because there's no consciousness, and the dead know nothing. So you're not going to fall away once you're dead. But we hope that by the time we have this earthly temple dissolved, the time we die, that we'll be, we will be acceptable to Him. We want to be acceptable now. And certainly at the time we die, we want to be acceptable. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ... He is the one who makes the judgments. If we get that far today, it says that, uh, down in chapter 6, that there is a day of salvation that is now upon us. It says the day of salvation, but it should be translated A. Your salvation and mine, our judgment is being made today. We are sitting before the judgment seat of Christ. The people out in the world aren't. They've not been called, they've not been given an earnest of the Spirit, and therefore their judgment is later, either in the Millennium or the Great White Throne Judgment, when they're brought up physically to be taught the truth. But we sit before that judgment seat today. Your judgment and mine is being made by the way we live and the way we think, so that by the time we die... We need to be, be, have been found acceptable to Him. Because when that resurrection comes, as I've explained before, the judgment has already been made. You'll either rise out of that grave or you won't. One of the two. He doesn't, He doesn't have a little graveside service there where He goes over all your, do, all your life with you. You either come up out of it and are joined by those who are alive and remain immediately. Or you stay on the ground until the third resurrection, if you've been converted. One of the two. So, when he says that we will all sit before the judgment, we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, it doesn't contradict that thought. Because now is a day of salvation for us. So, he's making that judgment. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, as we live this life as to whether we will be acceptable by the time we die. And if found acceptable, we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And if you've already changed, there's no point in going over your sins, is there? you already changed. You already got that reward. It's there. And he says your sins will no longer be mentioned to you, never be mentioned again because they've been washed away and you rise to meet him in the air, your judgment complete, either at the time you rise consciously from a living house, or whether you're in the ground. The judgment is complete, and you will have been found acceptable, hopefully. So we all are appearing there now, in a day of salvation, as he goes on to explain that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. So he says, whether you're living or you're in your grave, and absent from him in that sense, uh, this judgment will be made on whether there's more on your side that he'd rather keep, or more on the other side that he wouldn't want to have around Uh, He has to make that judgment, and it will be made by the time you die. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the eternal, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. There's a certain amount of terror in thinking that I might not make it in the lake of fire. There will be a few that go in, Says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we live, in that sense, in terror. We persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So he says, we have this fear of God, and this fear of this judgment that's coming upon us, and is being made as we live, and we might persuade men that we are what we ought to be, but everything will be made manifest to God. You can hide from men, but you can't hide from God. And he's the one that makes the judgments. Thankfully, because if we were to judge each other, everybody would die. You realize that? If mankind were allowed to judge mankind, none of us would make it. Because there's somebody going to condemn you, no matter who you are, or what you've done, or how good you are. Uh, we make those judgments and condemnations of each other day in and day out. Well, that's the negativity that human beings feed on. It's not godly. can't hide it from God, even though you might to man. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So he says, I hope that the service I'm giving, the letter I'm writing, the things I'm telling you should do, will be made manifested not only to God, but in your own conscience. So that when you want to break one of God's statutes or his laws, your conscience will beat you up. And that will cause you maybe to back off and not break that statute or judgment or law. So he says, I hope that the things I'm telling you, teaching you, preaching to you, writing to you, are educating your conscience to have a fear of God so that you don't sin. For we commend not ourselves again to you, we're not here bragging about ourselves or trying to put ourselves on a pedestal, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have some, uh, may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. So he says, we're not here for the glory of the worship or the desires or the approbation of men. We want something you have to answer to to those who glory in appearance and not in heart but we want your hearts to be so that you answer to God and to the ministry from the heart not just appearance because don't we go to a great deal of effort sometimes to appear a certain way Now, people You look at them out in the world. They have a vision of themselves of what they would like to be. They have this facade, this prepared way. And they think, they smile, they react in the way that they want to project so that you think well of them. And nobody wants to look bad. Everybody wants to look good. So it doesn't matter what may be going on in your head, the good, bad, and the ugly that might be there. You have this image that you want to put out there. And you tailor it to look a certain way. You look in the mirror and you see what you see. And sometimes we don't like to look at mirrors too much. Because we don't like what we see there. Uh, it's 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 looking worse by the day, the month, and the year. <laughs> What's there in that mirror. But we have this image in our mind of what we would like people to see when they look at us. So he says, we're not here for that. Let's get the heart right with God and each other. And then if our appearance is good to men, fine. But... We're not here to glory in appearance like people do in their image of themselves that they project. You know what happens when you attack their image? Their pride and their ego gets there, and they get very, very defensive. You, you criticize somebody and see just how fast, because they've got this image of what they are, and they've convinced themselves that that's it. And their pride and ego is just about skin deep. And if you do anything to tarnish the image that they have of themselves, you're suddenly in trouble. They're angry with you. They're upset with you. uh, And that's part of being a human being. And we suffer with it as well. So he's saying, don't do that. Get your heart right. For whether whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. So he says, what we're doing here is not just about ourselves. To be beside ourselves, What is it when you do that mirror trick? You're being beside yourself and you're looking at what you see and if it's appearances, then that's all wrong. We're here to be of God. And if we're sober and serious, it's for your help, for your cause. We're trying to explain some pretty sober and serious things so that you take it seriously and don't do it lightheartedly. We could come and stroke your ego and tell you, well, you, you know, you're a lot like Christ and you're wonderful and this and that and the other thing, and and you have this image of yourself already of self righteousness. And, boy, we can aid and abet and enable that self-righteous viewpoint that people have of themselves. No, it's not for that. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now, we have liberty in the law. We have liberty in Christ in that He forgives us. And we can move on, but we don't sin. But the love of God constrains us. What is constraint? Uh, Handcuffs are a restraint. A straitjacket is a restraint. Uh, House arrest is a restraint or a constraint. Uh, In other words, you cannot do everything you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, because we have Christ's word and his way, and we are constrained to walk as he walked, think as he thought, and do as he did. So, the love of God is what? This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. First John 5.3 So, God's commandments, his love, puts limits on us. We are to operate only within love. There is no room for hate, no room for bitterness, no room for condemnation or judgment, no room for negativity, no room for put-down, no room for gossip. In love. We are constrained by love to put all those things out of our minds and our hearts. There is no room within the love of God for these carnal human reactions that we tend to have. We're constrained by the love of God. We're limited by it. I hope we get that point. When you go out of the love square you're entering something else, a whole different world. Because what is there in this world? Animosity, hate, negativity, carnality, uh, murder, theft, adultery, fornication, you name it. The works of the flesh are what are out there. Now, the love of God constrains us from going to any of those places. So, within that, if we suspect somebody is doing this or that or the other thing, and our wild imaginations and our evil, the evil side of our mind that is not converted yet, wants to put them down or talk down about them, we say they are sinners. But if we go outside the constraint of God's love in our thinking, we're just as bad as they are. Maybe worse. Because we're condemning them while we're self-righteously <coughs> accepting ourselves and being their judge. You can't go there. Philippians 4 eight does not allow it. <coughs> the love of God constrains us not to go there. doesn't matter what they're doing or you think they're doing. You're not allowed to condemn or judge or put them down. (coughs) You're allowed to go to them in love. If there is indeed a problem, you're allowed to go to them in love and try to gain your brother. Not put him out, not get him to quit, not to disfellowship but to go in love to gain him. That's the constraint of love. Because this we judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That means that everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that we were all scheduled to die. And yet Christ died for us so that we might skip... Eternal death. His life here on this earth wasn't about our physical death. Because everybody that's lived since he came here has died. Except those who are still alive and scheduled to die. It was about eternal life. And eternal death. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves. But unto him which died for them and rose again. He's explaining basic Christianity here is what he's explaining. That he came and died for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And we don't live for ourselves anymore. It isn't about you. It isn't about me. I'm still sitting here breathing and so are you. And the breath of life that we still have is not about us. The world and the individuals in it, it's all about them. They ask questions like, well, what about me? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be rich? Am I going to enjoy the things that I want to enjoy? Am I going to be able to live a life of leisure or am I going to have to work? It's all about me. That's all a human being is, is me, myself, and I. Now, we have been asked to set me aside and say thee, God, or, on another level, we, to bring everybody else into me and become we, so that we love each other as much as we love ourselves. It's not about me anymore. It's about we. And we try to break it down to me. Me get my feelings hurt. You hurt me feelings. I don't like you anymore. You criticize me. It's all about me. In every human being's mind. Except unless God's Spirit raises it above that, where we begin to say, we... Not me. Now, we, that is you, me, and that other guy there, here in God's church, are having a problem. How are we going to settle it? It's not two people saying, me, 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 coming together, butting heads, and then walking away saying, can't gain that one. Because if you both come together saying, Me, 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 my feelings, my thoughts, my judgment, my understanding, me, you're probably not going to solve the problem. It's when we adopt the we that we sit down to help each other. That is love. The me, me, me thing that keys is to keep knocking heads is not of God. That's flesh. That's carnality. That's humanity. He died for all of us. And we, then, are to live to Him. It's not about me anymore. It's about we and Him. Verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You have a whole new outlook. A whole new way of solving problems. I've seen people out in the world, they get a problem, let's say they're sitting drinking somewhere. And somebody's feelings or somebody's pride gets hurt. How do they solve the problem? With fists or chairs or guns or knives or whatever me going to win this me going to come out on top that's carnal that's the natural human mind that is contrary and hates God how do we set aside the me and learn to think in terms of we he says you're to be a new creature All things are to become new. A whole different outlook. Now instead of me, it's we. Now instead of me, it's you, Father and Emmanuel, that count. That old way of thinking, that old way you were, is supposed to have gone away. Passed away. Passed away means died, went away. New way of thinking. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Emmanuel and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Me doesn't do any reconciling. We will reconcile people together. If you're thinking and loving that other person as much as you love yourself, then you're going to be willing to give in, to give up, to agree, to compromise uh, your feelings, swallow your pride, swallow your ego, swallow the self, and find a way to make peace. Peace among nations, peace between individuals does not come naturally. Fighting and war and violence come naturally. Not getting along comes naturally. Blessed are the peacemakers. That is a positive move. You have to... Peace will not come unless it is made. It has to be created from something. And we have to get rid of pride and ego and self in order to make peace. When people can't get along, you automatically know that there's carnality there. There is pride, there is ego, there is self in the way that prevents peace from being made. Those are the things that prevent peace. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, presumptuousness. Draw it down to one word, me. Me prevents peace. We can make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. So if you're not getting along, then you better think very seriously on your knees about getting rid of me and thinking we. Because it's a new way of thinking. It's an unnatural, not normal way of thinking. It's a godly way of thinking. And we do not have godly minds in and of ourselves, only by the earnest of the Spirit. So, we have this ministry of reconciliation. you got to reconcile me to Christ. Reconcile me to we. And to be reconciled, to get to the place you can get along again and be peaceful means reconciliation has to have occurred. Ministry is a service. So you could call this the service of making peace. Or a ministry of reconciliation is kind of a uh, a vaguer way that's harder to understand, perhaps. So a ministry of reconciliation is merely a service of solving problems and getting people to be close again, reconciled. That's a ministry we need to all be involved in. Or he says to wit, or that is to say, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, he explains what I've just been saying here. God was in Christ. He sent him here, and he was in him and with him while he was here. And Christ does not impute our trespasses to us. If we're to be like him, we do not impute each other's trespasses to each other. Otherwise, we cannot be reconciled. It will keep us divided. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He forgives. He removes the sin. He removes the problem. And therefore, we can be reconciled. Our sins cut us off from God, Isaiah 59.2. And it is only through Christ's death, that our sins can be forgiven, and we can be reconciled to Christ. So his is a ministry of reconciliation of human beings who have been following the devil to quit following the devil and be reconciled to Christ, which means that you give up the devil's ways and you walk in God's ways. In his ways do not include in any form or fashion pride, ego, and selfishness, jealousy, envy. None of that is godly. So to be reconciled to him, you have to get rid of that. To be reconciled to each other, you have to get rid of that. That's what this is all about, is coming to love each other is we love ourselves and love God above all of us. So the me has to become we. I hope that makes that clear and gives us, in layman's terms, uh, an understanding of reconciliation. That's a a big four- or five-syllable word. But me and we are pretty short, easy words. Now then... Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. Now, if a government of a nation in this world sends out an ambassador to another nation, that ambassador there is supposed to represent the government that he comes from a US ambassador to Turkey is supposed to represent the United States to the Turks in the best light he possibly can he's there as a messenger of goodwill of good feelings of good relationships he's there to help heal any breaches that come he's there to say my government really didn't mean that they meant this uh, he is to run interference for them. He's tried, tried to help that nation think well of his own nation. Now, we are the ambassadors of Christ, for Christ. And he has gone to his heavenly nation and is there, and we are the ones here representing him. And we have to, as ambassadors for Christ, get along with each other so that the world can look at us and see the love of God in us because it is very plainly said that, now I'm losing the quote, (laughs) I had it in mind, uh, that they will think well of us if we love each other if we reconcile our differences. But if we fight among ourselves like the Methodists do, or like the Baptists do, how does that represent God's kingdom? Huh? How does it? I know our neighbors around here see us fighting among ourselves here. They think that church of God, that place is sure a mess. How does that represent God? They don't speak to each other. They take each other to court. Even the ones that do meet together together, Don't always get along with each other. How are we ambassadors for Christ under those circumstances? No, he says, be reconciled to God. Heal the breach. Those who keep the Sabbath and His ways are supposed to be healers of the breach. There's a great breach between man and God. And we are here, given the earnest of the Spirit in order to begin healing that, between and among ourselves, and then with him. And he says, if you can't heal a breach among yourselves, if you can't swallow your vanity and your ego and your pride, and get along with each other and forgive each other and love one another, then I'm not going to forgive you. And the breach will not be healed between you and me. And when you die, you may not be acceptable to me. Because if you don't forgive each other, I will not forgive you. That's what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. Is reconciling our differences and getting to where we are in a an attitude of love and kindness and gentleness and patience one with another. Then we can have that with God, but not until. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, the righteousness of God is supposed to be reflected in us just as he was righteous, because we are to think his thoughts, walk in his steps, and do as he did. He made peace with us by forgiving all our sins and not imputing them to us. Blessed is a man to whom God does not impute sin. You know what? That also means blessed is the man who does not impute sin to his brothers and his neighbors. Get it?